Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right, be honest. How many of you looked at the football and said, I know who's preaching today? Uh, so last time I was up here a couple weeks ago, I shared with you a movie trailer, uh, but I wasn't here trying to promote that movie. Not that there's anything wrong with that movie. It's a great movie. But uh, today I don't have a movie trailer, but I do want to promote a movie. Uh, the movie is I Can Only Imagine. Uh, if you have not had a chance to see that, obviously some have. It's awesome. I want to highly recommend you go see the movie. Uh, the movie is about a guy named Bart Millard. And uh, Bart is the lead singer for Mercy Me. And as well, he wrote the song I Can Only Imagine, which uh, is, is now the most played Christian song in history. And this movie is a true story about his life. Uh, he was beaten as a child, and like I said, I, I highly recommend the movie, but I will be honest with you, it's about an abusive father, and so if you have abuse in your background, you just need to know that walking in, and it could be hard, for, it's hard for all of us to watch, but if it's in your background, just know that that may be uh, extre uh, especially hard, although they don't, they don't try, try to over-dramatize anything, it's clear what's going on, and so uh, again, that's just, I just want you to know that up front. But there's a line in the movie that uh, is very compelling. In the movie, Bart and his father are, are kind of going at it a little bit. And, and his father says, very passionately, he says, If Jesus can forgive all these other people, can't he forgive me? And Bart says, Dad, Jesus can forgive you. I can't. And honestly, that's what this sermon series is about. That's what I want to talk about this morning. So to begin with, I want you to think with me for a second about the church. Not Lake City, but the church. When you think about people outside of the church thinking about the church, what do you think they think? In other words, it's generally speaking, do people outside of the church have a positive view or a negative view of the church? Yeah, I think it's pretty hard to watch the news, look at social media, uh, kind of hear the chatter out there and not come to the conclusion that generally speaking, people outside of the church have a negative view of the church. Uh, and certainly the re research would bear that out. They, they asked people who don't attend church, not even on holidays, what they thought about the church. And 72% of people outside the church said the church is full of hypocrites. So, you know, if you know anything about what hypocrite means and you know anything about this Christian journey we're on, then that 72% is way too low, right? But the reality is that, generally speaking, the view of the church from outside the church looking in is negative. Several years ago, uh, the Barna Group did some research, and based on that research, David Kinnaman wrote a book, Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. The truth is, when you look at the church, it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, on the one hand, oh my goodness, so much good throughout history has happened because of the church. So much good has happened. On the other hand, so much sin has happened. Abuse, abuse of power, abuse of money has happened in the church. So it's kind of a mixed bag. But you can't deny that as you look at history, the number of hospitals, schools, universities, organizations that were started by the church, people of faith, 
Throughout history, when people would find themselves, when you'd find people running from problems, running from danger, you would find Christians running into the problem, running into the danger. More recently, when you look around at the third world countries, the church has in large part mobilized the resources and manpower to find clean water, start schools, feed the starving. ABC News report said this, the single biggest predictor of whether someone will be charitable is their religious participation. Religious people are more likely to give to charity and when they give, they give more money four times as much. And Arthur Brooks told me that giving goes beyond their own religious organization. Actually, the truth is that they're giving to more than their churches. He says, the religious Americans are more likely to give to every kind of cause and charity, including explicitly non-religious charities. Then according to the Chronicle of Philanthropy, Americans who claim a religious affiliation give significantly more to charitable causes than those who do not identify a religious creed. So in so many ways, one of the distinctives of the church has been its willingness to run into trouble. One of the distinctives of the church has been its willingness to step into danger, to give, to help the needy, to help those that are hurting. But I believe as I look around our culture today that in many ways that, that desire to help the needy, the, the desire to feed the hungry, has almost become sexy. I mean, you see athletes and movie stars, businesses. Uh, I don't know if you know this business, Tom's Shoes. Here's their tagline. With every product you purchase, Tom's will help a person in need, one for one. So you buy a pair of Tom's Shoes and they give a pair of Tom's Shoes to somebody in need. So in a sense, what was once the domain of the church, this, this need or this, uh, this willingness to step into the fray and to give, is no longer just the domain of the church. And that is a good thing. Like, we should celebrate that. I'm glad that more and more people are seeing the needy and saying we need to step in and help with our time and our resources. But I want to suggest today that we have an opportunity for a new distinctive for the church. Last week, Pastor Jim started this sermon series, Set Free, The Power of Forgiveness. He talked about recognizing that I need God, choosing to pursue God, and then receiving God's forgiveness through Christ. We celebrated Easter last week. You know, the, great, the, the greatest weekend in the church calendar. But today I want to talk about gospel reenactment. And what I believe could be the new distinctive in the church. So to talk about gospel reenactment, we first need to talk about what do we mean by gospel? After all, you can't reenact something that you don't understand. And gospel is one of those words we all understand. We talk about it all the time in church. So you might not have noticed, but the ushers were taking your names down as you walked in. And so I've asked them, they're going to randomly choose one of your names. And it's going to be up on the board. And then you're going to come up with the microphone. And we want you to explain the gospel. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> but I did do that with my kids. Came out, I said, hey, so you guys define the gospel. What is the gospel? What does that mean? Now, these are kids that have grown up in church. They've, I mean, they've lived a young life camp for weeks on end. They've heard the gospel message. And I asked them, I said, hey, so what's the gospel? <laughs> kind of like all of you, right? Going, oh, please don't call my name. Please don't call my name. <laughs> we hear the gospel all the time, but what does it actually mean? 
you've been here the last couple of weeks, I promise you, you have heard the gospel presented. If you want to define gospel, there's several ways that it can be defined. One way is it simply means the truth. You know, people outside of the church on, in any, any, virtually any subject will say, well, that is the truth. That is the gospel. It also can be used to refer to the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel can be referring to the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of his disciples. Or gospel can, be, can refer to glad tidings, especially concerning salvation and the kingdom of God as announced to the world by Christ. And that's the definition I want to hone in on this morning. The gospel message, the good news, salvation, being saved. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel begins with this simple truth. God created us to be in a perfect relationship with himself. We read in Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So you read Genesis, you see the creation account. It says, you know, God said, and it was so, and it was good. God said, and it was so, and it was good. God said, it was so, and it was good. God said, it was so, and it was good. And then all of a sudden on this one day, God decides to do something special. He decides to create man in his own image, put him over to rule over the rest of his creation. And for the first time he says, it was very good. So you might be wondering, what are these chairs? These chairs kind of are an illustration of this relationship that God created right from the beginning. He designed us to be in this perfect relationship, face to face with God. That's what God designed. That's what God created. That's what God desired right from the beginning. But something happened. Sin entered the world. We know the story of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2:15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Adam and Eve, you guys can have anything in the garden, anything, just not that tree. It's kind of like telling your four-year-old, you can play with all the toys in this room, but that, that Lego masterpiece your brother did, don't touch that. All right, if you saw the movie uh, Dennis the Menace, I picture Dennis wanting to push that, the copier button, right? <laughs> Don't eat the fruit. What did they do? They ate the fruit. The Bible. You know, I said a couple weeks ago, this is God's big story, but it's always pointing to Jesus. Oftentimes, though, people will look at this and they'll say, it's just a bunch of rules, a bunch of commandments, a bunch of do's and don'ts. How does that work? It's just the law, the Ten Commandments. Romans 7, 7 says, what then shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, I think of it this way. Think of a car manufacturer. They build a car and then they give you a manual because they know how it's built. They know how it works best. God gave us his, this book because he created us. He knows how we work best. I mean, think of it this way. Raise your hand if you've ever had anybody lie to you. Okay, if you're not raising your hand, you're lying to me right now, okay? Okay. <laughs> 
your hand if you've ever had somebody steal something from you. How's it feel when somebody lies to you? How's it feel when somebody steals from you? Not very good, huh? So what's wrong with God's law? Don't worry, I won't ask how many of you have stolen or lied. But you get the point. But see, God said, if you do eat the fruit, then surely you will die. And I, I, I don't want you to focus on the eating of the fruit, okay? I don't want you to focus on that part of it. Because too often we focus on that, although that's obviously sin, the real issue, okay, the real issue that we've got to focus on is that when they chose to eat the fruit, in essence, here's what they did. They said, you know what, God? We got this. We're good. I know what you said, but I got this. See, too often, even in our own life, we focus on lying, cheating, stealing. We forget the real issue is we've kind of said, God, you can talk to the hand. And God says, surely you will die. And, you know, the natural question is, but why? And the reason, and the answer is because he's a perfect and holy God. God's response to evil is outrage. You will hear us say sometimes sin is offensive to God. And I know in our culture today, sometimes it's like, ooh, that's kind of harsh, you know, offensive. But the reason sin is offensive to God is because God is holy. See, some would say, well, yeah, but if God is, you know, all loving and wonderful, then seriously, he's going to condemn people to hell? I mean, what kind of a loving God does that? And I would say two things to you. One is God knows how we work best because he knows what's best for us because he created us. And the second thing I would say is God is perfectly just. You knew I'd get to the football eventually, right? You know, they, they say the legendary coach, Vince Lombardi, would start off his season with a bunch of professionals, and he'd always start off by saying, this is a football. So imagine you go to football practice, and the coach says, this is a football. And then he goes on and he says, here's some team rules. You need to be at practice on time. You are not allowed to miss practice. You better work hard. You better treat your teammates well. And you know what? If you don't, don't expect to play. In fact, you might not even be on the team. And then, of course, Johnny All-American shows up for the team. And he's late to all the practices. He skips practice when he wants. He's awful to his teammates. But when you hand him the football, he scores touchdowns. So the coach says, you know what? I'm a good guy. I'm a loving guy. I'm not going to, I mean, come on. It's all right if he plays. So what do you think of that coach? Good guy? Is he just? Or how about the teacher? The teacher says, you know what? Your paper is due on Friday. No exceptions, no late work. You need to have that paper done on Friday. So you procrastinate. You stay up all night Thursday night to get it done. You show up the next day and only one other person has finished it besides you. And so the teacher, because she's a nice person, says, you know what, I'll give you till Monday. Is that a just teacher? 
See, the reality is God is a holy God. He is a just God. And so when sin entered the world, when we sin, when we say, God, you can talk to the hand, man's relationship with God changed. In Genesis 3.10, we read, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Sin changed that relationship. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about Adam and Eve. I'm talking about you and me. Romans 3.23 reminds us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I have 11 kids. Some of them are here right now. I did not have to teach any of them to be selfish. Not a one of them. I mean, maybe it's just my kids. Your kids are different. You know what? And nobody had to teach me to be selfish, to want what I want when I want it. So sin enters the picture. It changes the relationship. What happens when our relationship with God changes? What happens when our relationship with God is broken in big ways and small ways? Well, there's a, there's a few different responses we can have. One is we can try to fix it. Go do good things. Help old ladies across the street. Try to earn our way back into God's good graces. We can try to buy it. Give our money to good causes. Give our money to the church. We can try to numb it. You know, I don't like that this relationship is broken. I'm just going to numb it. Drugs and alcohol, what have you. Maybe I'll mask it. Just going to be happy. Woo! Life's good. Maybe just replace it with other things or replace it with people. Or maybe I'll just try to ignore it. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter. But the reality is when that relationship with God is broken, there is a hole that is God-shaped in all of us. Some have credited Blaise Pascal for that quote, but here's what he actually said. He said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? In other words, he says, the reason there's this longing, the reason that there's this yearning for something is because once upon a time it wasn't there. Once upon a time we had true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find and those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. This yearning, this, this desire, that, or this, this knowledge that there's something missing. Listen, I was on Young Life staff for 20 years. I've been in youth ministry a lot of, a lot of years. And when I talked to youth, this was the common uh, point that, that came up so, so often. This sense of there's something missing in my life. And I'd be like, yes, and I know what it is. When that relationship with God is broken, when there's a hole in us, we can do all sorts of things to try to fill it, but God had one plan, one rescue plan, and it's always been the same since the beginning. Two weeks ago, I talked a little bit about the precursor to that plan. If you remember, the nation of Israel is uh, in captivity in Egypt and Moses is trying to get Pharaoh to let the nation of Israel go. And so God brings these plagues and the 10th plague is the angel of death is going to come and kill all the firstborn throughout Egypt. But if Israel will paint their doorposts with the blood of a lamb, then the angel of death would pass over that home and thus rescue the nation of Israel. It was a precursor, right? For what would one day come, the perfect lamb, whose blood would be shed and deliver us and rescue us 
from our own sin. We call that the incarnation, by the way. That perfect substitute that would come, God would put on skin, come to earth, Jesus. The word became flesh. I love the message translation for John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Moved into the neighborhood because he was the rescue. The Bible says when Jesus was on the, on the cross, it says this in John 19 verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Understand this. When he said it is finished, that's translated from a word tetelestai. When he said it is finished, he wasn't saying I'm dying. That word tetelestai is the same word that you would find in Bible times stamped on receipts, paid in full, tetelestai. What Jesus was saying is he was saying the debt that you owe is paid in full. It is finished. I have done the work so that you no longer have to be separated from God. Tetelestai. And that's why we have John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The final piece of the gospel message what we celebrated last week, Easter weekend, is the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, only Christ could remove death's sting. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked this question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because see, Jesus paid the price. Tetelestai, it is done. All is right with us and a holy God. But there's still something wrong with that picture, right? What is it? We're faced the wrong way. God has taken care of the issue. But you know what? We have to choose to turn our chair around. God will never make you turn your chair around. He will never make you follow him. He's taken care of what needed to be taken care of, but we have to choose to turn our chair around. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you turn your chair around, you will be saved. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge that Jesus is the one that paid that penalty and you will be saved. That is the gospel message. And if you come to re-engage long enough, you will hear us talk about the gospel reenactment in marriage because marriage is like the perfect example, direct example of gospel reenactment. If you read Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, you know that it compares marriage to Christ and his church. And so in our marriages, we have the opportunity to live out the gospel, to reenact the gospel. Think of it this way. We all go to the altar, right? In fact, I know a couple right here that's going to the altar here very, very soon. We go to the altar for the happily ever after, right? I mean, nobody goes to the altar and says, I love you today and I can't wait till I hate you and we get a divorce. <laughs> we all go planning on having this thing be awesome and wonderful. But what happens? Sin. 
right? Sin. Kelly and I, when we went to the altar, guess what? We both drug along with us a lot of sin. And because of that sin, we cause in big ways and small ways for our relationship to be broken. And then just like in our relationship with God, we can do a few different things with that broken relationship. We can try to fix it. I get big and I get loud and I get very unloving with Kelly, so I buy her a rose. Because that's what she needs, right? A rose. No. Or maybe we just try to mask it. We just put on a good face. Woo, everything's good. Yeah, we're all good. It's all good here. Or we numb it. Alcohol, pornography, money, work, relationships. We can even numb it with good things. Pour ourselves into serving so we don't have to deal with the most important earthly relationship that we have. Or we can just ignore it. Just pretend it isn't so. Or we can do the one thing that God provides for us, the same as in our relationship with God, the rescue, which is the gospel message of forgiveness. And I believe that can become the new distinctive for the church. Because see, people will look at your marriage and they'll say, you know, I'm not sure about all that stuff you believe, but I really like what I see going on there. I don't know if I'm ready to, you know, buy into all that stuff, but I want to know more about what's going on with you. Because they see the gospel lived out in your marriage, in your life. But the reality is we have the opportunity to live out, to reenact the gospel in all our other relationships as well, whether you're married or not. Because just like in our, in our marriage relationships, no one starts off a relationship with their neighbor or their coworker or their kids or their parents. No one starts off a relationship hoping that one day it goes south and they end up bitter enemies. We all start those relationships hoping that they'll be great. They'll be, we'll be good friends. But guess what happens? Sin. Sin enters the picture. And you know why? It's one of my favorite illustrations. Promise, no trick questions. What is this? An orange. If I squeeze this orange, what will come out? Orange juice, right? Every time, right? I mean, does it matter what day I squeeze this orange? I mean, will it be different if I squeeze it on Tuesday versus Friday? Does it matter who squeezes this orange? No, every time I squeeze it, what's going to come out? Will I ever get lemon juice out of this? No. And here's the, here's the question, and again, no trick questions. Why? Because that's what's inside, right? And so the reason sin enters all of our relationships is because that's what's inside. We sin against each other. And in big ways and small ways, it changes that relationship. Unfortunately, in those relationships outside of God and outside of our marriage, oftentimes it's easier to ignore. We can just say, I am never talking to that person again. Because forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is hard with God. Forgiveness is hard in our marriage. Forgiveness is hard in relationships. But honestly, that's where the opportunity lies. Because it's so hard, we will look so different you might remember back in 2006 when the Amish community was 
shattered because Charles Roberts shot and killed five children. Tragedy, terrible. But what the world could not believe as they watched was how the Amish people forgave the killer, hugged the killer's widow, forgave the family. And I'm not saying it was easy because it wasn't. I mean, they went through, they've continued to go through years of trauma and challenges because of that. But they chose to forgive and the world took notice because it was so different. So not what everybody expected. The truth is there is a tension with forgiveness. There is a tension when it comes to forgiveness. We are absolutely called to forgive, but it comes with a tension. I don't know if you know this person. This is Rachel Den Hollander. And she, you know, honestly, I think she might be the bravest young woman I have ever come across. If you don't know who she is, she's the one who started the ball rolling that ultimately exposed the worst case of child molestation in history. Larry Nasser, the gymnast, uh, the physician for the gymnast that uh, had just done some evil things, terrible, terrible, terrible things. She's the one that started that ball rolling. And so she was the last one to testify in court to be able to confront Nasser. Uh, and she does an amazing job. If you, I encourage you to listen to it yourself. You can find it on YouTube. It's 36 minutes long. And I'm going to take just a little excerpt out of that uh, that I want you to hear. But hear me on this because I don't want to be misunderstood. I am not dismissing all that Nasser did. It's awful. And I'm not dismissing that all you got to do is forgive and everything will be great. It's not. There's a long journey ahead of these, these women. But I want you to hear what this brave young woman, Rachel Den Hollander, uh, had to say to the court and to Larry Nasser. Here you go. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom. And you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt 
so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. There is a tension in forgiveness, right? There is a tension with forgiveness. See, forgiveness isn't say that it's okay, because it's not okay. But I choose to forgive anyways. Forgiveness does not mean that it didn't hurt, because it did hurt. But I choose to forgive anyways. Some people will say, well, but I, I don't feel like it, so I must not be ready to forgive. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's choosing to forgive. And some will say, well, I can't forget it, so I must not be ready. And the truth is, you know, they'll say, because, I mean, think about it. The Bible says that God throws them for the, as far as the east is from the west, throws them in the sea of forgetfulness, remembers them no more. So I can't do that, so I must not be ready to forgive. Well, I have some news for you. You are not God. Forgiving doesn't mean that we forget. Now, obviously, if we keep bringing it up and using it as a weapon, that's a whole different conversation. But just because in our human limitations, we aren't able to completely forget, doesn't mean we can't, out of obedience, choose to forgive. But forgiveness is hard. And I hope you heard in Rachel's voice, it comes at a cost. We call it grace. Another one of those words that we use so often in church, sometimes I worry we don't even think about what does it actually mean. Grace, unmerited favor, stuff we did, something we don't deserve. Some think that if you begin forgiving that you cheapen grace. Cheap grace, that term cheap grace can be traced back to a book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. It was published in 1937, but in that book, Bonhoeffer defined cheap grace. Here's what he said. The preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Listen, grace costs Jesus everything. And it will cost you. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it will send a message to the world. It'll be a tangible example of the gospel of Christ being lived out in your life and in my life. I do have to say this. On the other hand, the flip side is we can choose not to forgive. We can choose to hold on to that offense. Remember, God knows how we best function, how we best live and the truth is, if you choose to hold on to that, that offense, choose not to forgive, it leads to bitterness. Someone once said, holding on to that offense, choosing to not forgive is like drinking poison, hoping that it kills somebody else. It leads to bitterness. So I've given you three next steps. The first one is just that you would choose God's grace given to you through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Choose to turn your chair around. If you have not done that, I just pray that today would be the day that you would say yes, that you would choose to repent from your sins and say, Jesus, I need a savior. And choose to turn your chair around. Remember, God will never make you turn your chair. That's gonna be your choice. Number two, choose to reenact the gospel in your marriage. If you're married, 
then choose to say, I'm sorry. Choose to say, please forgive me and choose to be willing to forgive. You will, you will point people to a gospel message just in the way that you live out your marriage. And whether you're married or not, <clears throat> there's other relationships in your life. Number three, choose to reenact the gospel with, and then there's a blank, fill in the blank. If you're seeking forgiveness, here's what I would say. I would say, get on your knees and pray and say, God, open the eyes of my heart. Help me to know the places where I have sinned. Help me know the places where I have wounded someone else, my spouse, my neighbor, my coworker. Help me know where those places are and then have the courage to walk up to that person and say, I'm sorry for, will you please forgive me? When Kelly and I were first challenged to do this in our marriage, I remember it. I remember having to look her in the eye and say, honey, I am so sorry for getting big and getting loud and being so unloving to you. Will you please forgive me? On the other side, if you have to extend forgiveness, then I pray that you would have the courage to step through that tension of forgiveness. I pray that you'd be able to say, I forgive you. Your slate is clean. When Kelly and I did that, it changed our relationship. And it will change your relationship as well. In the movie, Bart finds out that his father has cancer. And he ultimately reenacts the gospel with his father. He forgives his father and they repair their relationship. He says he wrote the lyrics for I can only imagine in 10 minutes. In a minute, I'm going to transition down to the Lord's table for communion. And while I do that, we're going to just play a short little clip from the song I can only imagine. But understand, choosing to forgive means that we point people to Jesus because we reenact the gospel. We point people to heaven. We point people to a day where we will all be standing in God's glory. Will you pray with me? Father God, thanks so much for all that you did for us on the cross. Thank you for the gospel message that you created us to be in relationship with you, that you have rescued us from our sin, that you died on the cross, rose again so that we might have victory over death. And God, I just pray for anyone here who has not yet turned their chair around, that today might be the day that they would choose you, that they would choose to say yes to you. Lord, thank you that you rescued us. And I pray, God, today that uh, we would be so aware of your presence. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.